Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. Today, we're joined by Annie Kirby. Annie will be reading to us from and talking about The Hollow Sea. Annie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really so happy to be here, Yvonne. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. I'm just thankful that you said yes, and I'm really looking forward to hearing you read. So let's dive right in. So I'm really curious about, and this is always, I feel like one of my first questions, is if, if you can tell us a little bit about, I guess in your own words, if you can tell us about The Hollow Sea. So The Hollow Sea tells the story of Scotty, who is a, a woman who's been through a lot of trauma in her life. And she's been trying for many, many years to become a mother. She has another round of fertility treatment along with her husband coming up and she just can't do it anymore. She can't face it, but she also can't really face up to not being a mother. So she's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. So what she does, she does what she's always done throughout her whole life is to run away. And she runs away to this remote archipelago in the North Atlantic ocean because she thinks she might have some connection to it. So she's a, she's an adult adoptee. She doesn't know anything about her past she hasn't researched her past but she she kind of stumbles across a photograph of this island on the internet and feels very drawn to it and it's partly an excuse to get away from the IVF and more fertility treatment but also you know it's on her mind that she doesn't have a relative a blood relative and she won't be having any children so so she wants to kind of go back to her past and see if she can find out about her family so once she arrives on the island she becomes very drawn to the story of Thora or Thordis, who is another childless woman reputed by the locals to have been a witch. And, and as she begins to unravel Thordis's real story, she also starts to come to terms with her with her own story and her future as well. Kind of the unexpected future of not being a mother and not having children in it. Wow. Could we have our first reading, please? Of course. Thank um, you. So I'm actually going to just start with chapter one. The woman and the girl, monsters. I think of them often. The woman and the girl in the dilapidated fishing boat with a mermaid painted on the deck, fleeing monsters of some kind or another. They would have left at first light, travelling south from Bride Island across the Hollow Sea, a stretch of water treacherous in more ways than one then east towards the mainland, the greens and greys of the archipelago fading into mist behind them. Ahead, an endless barren sea and the hope of refuge beyond. They almost made it. Sometimes, in my imagination, the monster that catches them is a storm, conjured from the early evening stillness. The woman remains a calm space, a breath note of silence in the screaming tempest, bone white knuckles on the wheel, her face lashed by sodden ropes of her own pale hair. Carried up, the fishing boat cresting on the peak of a wave, the woman a statue focused only on sanctuary, keeping the girl safe. Then, plummeting, her stomach left behind, the boat hurled into a space existing between two monster waves, shattering her last illusions of control. Waves arch together overhead, a temporary shelter. The girl crouches motionless in the cramped cockpit, dark curls poking out from beneath her rain hat, hands linked around a red satchel slung across her torso. 
Beneath her raincoat, she is still in her pyjamas. She was supposed to have a cake today with buttercream and eight candles. She wants to ask the woman if there will be cake when they get to wherever they're going, but she doesn't dare. The woman wipes her face with her sleeve, mouths a few jumbled words of comfort to the girl, and the waves crash down on them. There is an alternative version of their last few moments. It comes to me more and more in those early sleepless hours. In this imagining, the sea is calm, the air around them quivering with silence, stirred only by the faint chug of the engine and the lapping of waves against the hull, the mainland in the near distance sinking into a twinkling spring dusk. The woman thrums her fingers on the wheel and dances from one foot to the other. She glances at the empty swathe of ocean behind them, squints into the setting sun, shoves a loose strand of hair behind her ear. In this imagining, she has no tender words for the girl, no tender emotions. She is consumed by thoughts of safety, the mainland. Whatever it is that lurks in the calm, an uncharted rock, a ship, a monster, finds them. Which of my imagined scenarios is true? Perhaps neither, but in both, the woman and the girl go into the water, and when they do, my imaginings merge into one. The sea is freezing. The shock of it forces the air from the woman's lungs. Water closes over her head, rushes in to fill the empty spaces. The islanders had called her witch, but she has no magic to save herself. There is a slow heartbeat of a moment when the woman is bitter and angry and grateful, hollowed out with loss and love. The girl is sinking beside her, their fingertips brushing, and the woman makes one last supreme effort to grab the girl's wrist and propel her upwards in a flurry of bubbles. Now the woman is alone beneath the water, and the water is in her. Colours. All the colours. White noise fading into beautiful silence. Oh, wow. What an evocative opening. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So it feels like the book, it has so many themes. I mean, you, the topics of identity, family, motherhood, mothering, being mothered, um, loss, adoption, that whole search for family and bloodlines and, and what that might be like. And then even escape and, and kind of leaving and returning and trying to find your own identity in your own way. Where did the idea for The Hollow Sea come from? I wanted to write a book about childlessness because I spent a long time, many years trying to become a mother and not becoming a mother. And I read a lot of books about infertility and they usually ended with a miracle baby which when I was still trying was great but when I was kind of into that next stage of my life I really wanted to find books where there was no miracle baby at the end of the story and I really struggled to find those stories and at the same time I had also written a novel years ago, a terrible novel that went in the bottom drawer, literally. (laughs) Um, But it was set on this remote archipelago in the North Atlantic and it it had mythology and it was storm lashed. And that place, that location had stayed with me, even though that novel didn't work. So I I replotted it and made it a story about childlessness and grief and identity, whereas before it was a, a book about 
having children it became a book about not having children and I recast it with new characters and and brought those two ideas together I really like that you saw that kind of that opening in in stories because there's always someone there's a reader somewhere who needed to read the book just as you wrote it who needed to read that there were um ways beyond what other books might position as the happy ending and looking beyond maybe what the reader expected or having any number of openings or endings that don't necessarily like you said end with this miracle and because there's so many other miracles and so many other like endings so I really like that you saw kind of that need for readers and you you know you filled it with your book yeah and I I mean you know to be honest I was being completely selfish it's it's what I needed Mm. to read so and you know I couldn't find it so I wrote it and isn't that what Toni Morrison recommended? It's yeah. that thing about if you don't write the book that you want to read and you wait for someone else to write it, then really who's going to write the book that you need yeah. when you need it? So, you know, I think that's great. Could we have another reading, please? Of course. In this chapter, we're going to meet Scotty. Scotty, the haunted room. We had a haunted room in our house, pale apple green with stenciled stars and a creaking sash window. We'd never decorated. The green paint and stars left behind by the previous owners when they moved their brood to a larger place. We renovated the rest of the house, steaming off wallpaper, sanding floorboards, smoothing plaster over our techs. But this room we left untouched, even though paint was peeling off the skirting boards and occasionally we would find moth eggs the shape of rice grains in the carpet. Our lack of attention to the room wasn't a conscious decision. Nothing we discussed. Perhaps we were superstitious, worried about jinxing things. Over time, the air in the room had thickened with not-quite-ghosts, will-o'-the-wisps haunting us not from the past but from the future. Our childish superstition started to feel like a bad joke. Awake in the early hours, a few days before we were due to start preparing for our next frozen embryo transfer, clawing myself up from the mud of a half-remembered dream, Jasminder was lying on his side, facing away from me, a thin strip of space between us, his breaths rattling on the cusp of a snore. I slid out from under the duvet, careful not to wake him, creeping along the stripped wood floors to our little haunted bedroom across the landing. The blind was up, the room suffused with the amber glow of light pollution from the city and suburbs fanning out around our house. It smelt fusty with a faint undertone of moss spray. Outside, urban foxes yelped and the drone of a moped came and went and came again. I wanted to return to my dream. I had the faint sense in the few lingering stands I could still grasp that the not-quite-ghosts who inhabited this room had been in the dream and I'd been able to touch them. I craved that touch, wanted it more than I'd ever wanted anything. So I closed the door behind me, curled up on the sofa bed beneath a dusty throw and closed my eyes. I slowed my breathing, allowed it to deepen as if I was still asleep and willed myself to slide back down into the dream. For a moment, I thought I would succeed sinking down, down in slow motion through dark, viscous liquid. There were faces all around me, faces I would have given anything to see clearly, to cup, in my hands to kiss. But then I was snapping awake as dawn glimmered through the open blinds. Bad night, 
Jasminder was standing in the doorway, yawning and sleep rumbled in his pyjamas. I'm sorry if I wake you. He rubbed his fingers across his stubble. I'm on earlies anyway. He came and sat beside me, taking my hands. This is going to be the one, Scotty, the one that sticks. I shook my head at him, tried to retrieve my hands, but he held on tight. I know, he said. He linked his fingers through mine briefly and let go. He looked sad. He glanced up at the stars on the wall. This bloody room, eh? Try to look forward, knocked back. He touched his index and middle fingers to his lips, then to my forehead, a gesture he had made thousands of times before, but never had it made me feel so sad. Try to go out today if you feel up to it. It's not good for you sitting inside all the time. And can you finish sorting out the house insurance? It runs out soon. You don't need to task me. I'm not one of your constables. He looked hurt. I'm not tasking you, but this stuff needs to get done so we can focus on the FET. I thought about pointing out that his use of the word we wasn't entirely accurate. It wouldn't be him having injections and mood swings and hot flushes. It wouldn't be him having the endometrial lining of his uterus scratched to try to give the embryo a better chance of grabbing on. It wouldn't be him having transvaginal ultrasounds or inserting progesterone pessaries. But I swallowed my words knowing they were unfair perfectly capable of organising my own day. He retreated, knowing he couldn't win this battle no matter what he said. Moments later, I heard him in the bathroom humming a little tune as he shaved, and I felt a simultaneous rush of affection and irritation for his knack of moving on from an argument when I would be fuming for hours. Try to look forward, not back, he had said. But looking forward, conceiving of a future was exactly what I couldn't do. I put my hands on my stomach, pressing against the hollow space there, wondering how on earth I could tell him I wasn't sure if I could face any more fertility treatment. Oh, I've reached the point where I can ask my final question. And I feel like there's so much more that I want to know. It's such a a moving extract that you've just read. You're welcome. And there's so much tension and that inner turmoil And then for one character not to be able to share this with the other, you imagine how heartbreaking that is to, you know, you want to build a family with this person, but then the struggle is that, but also all the emotional things that go along with this and not being able to share this with this one person. You just feel like, oh my gosh. So I guess my my final question is going to be, the book is set in the fictional Saintia. And what does the setting make possible in terms of, the place will have its own history, mystery, lore. And so what does making this fictional place and bringing it to life for the book make possible in terms of the stories you're able to tell? I suppose for me, it gave me freedom as a writer, whereas using a real place, I did consider it, but I wanted I wanted the freedom to do exactly as I pleased as a writer. I wanted to be able to make up my own mythology. I wanted to tell exactly the stories I wanted to tell. And although the mythologies that are in the book are based on British mythology, mythologies, I think things like Selkies and Finfolk and Mermaids, I also wanted to be respectful and, and not kind of mess with anybody else's culture of storytelling. And I'm not from those places 
So yeah, so I was kind of, I was inspired by British and Irish mythology, but I just wanted to be free to do what I wanted with those stories. Um, so I created a place from my imagination, which is also a fun thing to do as a writer. I, I kind of, I love doing that. And it took years. I mean, it was it was many years in the making to create this location. I do a lot. I'm the kind of writer who thinks a lot before I put any words onto the page. But for me, it enabled me to create that location as a almost as a character in the book with its own personality and its own secrets. I just I felt if I used a real place, I would not have that the flexibility and the freedom to do that. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I love that you were like, it, it, it took years to do, because I think sometimes, you know, we don't know how long it takes. But if you're you're creating the place, and then a mythology for this place, and all, you know, putting all these pieces together. So I think I really like knowing that actually, it takes a really long time to, to do it right. And once you do it right, maybe that means you can set other stories in that world or play with the mythology yeah. in other ways and for other, you know, pieces. So and I think there might be, um, I think there might be other stories to come from that world as well. So fingers oh, crossed. Okay. Oh, good, good. Congratulations. So could we have our final reading, please? Of course. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to introduce a brand new voice now that we haven't talked about. So this is uh, Charlotte, the beach. Helen always believed I was afraid of the ocean. But the truth is, I dreamt about it my whole life. Not the treacly brownish grey sea that enclosed our island city, or the polite waves of tourist beaches, but an ocean that beat with a wild, inconstant heart. I had seen a lot of seas and oceans in my life, some wilder than others. A few had called to me, but in the end I had found all of them wanting. Helen's mistake had been understandable, because on the one and only occasion they took me to the coast, a long and hot bank holiday day trip to celebrate the removal of my back brace, I screamed bloody murder when they tried to get me to go any closer to the water than the shingle car park abutting the beach. They had bundled me back into Phil's rusting Austin Allegro for the endless journey home, snaking along A roads crammed with glittering cars, Helen chain-eating barley sugars in a furious rhythm of crunch, crack, swallow. Phil, with his usual jokey self, as if the trip hadn't been an unmitigated disaster, but I saw something else in the line of his shoulders, in the faint tension of his movements as he checked mirrors, indicated changed gears. Something close to sadness, but deeper and more complex than my just-turned ten-year-old self could grasp. Six months later, he would be dead, robbed of the chance to be thought of as my dad to stop being just Phil. And I sometimes wonder whether in that moment he knew he never would. And that was why his sadness leaked out through the set of his shoulders, no matter how many jokes he told. It hadn't been the sea that had frightened me as I stood by the neatly spaced white stones marking the transition from car park to seawall. The saltiness in the air The crying gulls, the rhythmic beating of the waves on the beach had sent a thrill through me and I had jumped out of the car as soon as Phil had pulled into the parking space. What had horrified me, what had stopped me jumping down from the seawall onto the beach was the sand. Immediately beneath the wall, the sand was dry and pale, billowy, jumbled with day trippers and windbreaks and beach towels pinned down with books. But beyond that, 
The receding tide had left a vast swathe of wet, rippled sludge. Children were playing in it, building sandcastles, digging moats, and the sand stuck to them darkly, clinging to their legs and swimming costumes. That was what prompted my screaming fit, followed by a bout of inconsolable sobbing. The thought of getting that wet sand on me, of it touching my skin. But the sea... It had spoken to me from beyond the uncrossable chasm of wet sand. Bluish grey, shifting, twinkling, vast, I could hear its call. It stayed in my ears for months, woke me in the night, permeated my dreams. Over the years, I came to understand that the sea I had glimpsed on the other side of that vast, rippling expanse of sand was not the ocean of my dreams, not the ocean that beat with a wild, inconstant heart but it had woken me, alerted me to the presence of something, a different ocean buried deep in my past. Oh, Annie, where can we buy The Hollow Sea? Well, all good bookshops, but in particular, I really love bookshop.org because you can uh, buy online. It's really easy to do, but you can support your local bookshop as you buy. So they you can choose whichever bookshop you want to, and they'll pay a percentage of the profits across your local independent bookshop. They have the convenience of buying online and having it delivered. So I really love, I really love Bookshop Org. I think it's brilliant. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you for being our guest, for reading to us, for answering the questions. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, wonderful. It's my pleasure.